When I was a, when I was a kid, maybe some of you can relate to this, I, I used to get really homesick. And uh, in fact, I, I can remember even all the way up into like high school, being afraid of going to sleepover parties, going to church retreats, going to summer camps. I, I just, I, I like being at home. I like being around my family. And, you know, and anytime I was away, I just, I had these really irrational fears, you know, what if my parents died or something like that. And I remember, I, th- I think it probably stems from a traumatic experience I had in fifth grade. Uh, my parents shipped me off to summer camp, uh, Trout Lake Camp, which was our uh, church's denominational camp at the time. And it was my first time going away for a week on my own. It was me and one of my buddies. And, uh, you know, I was just so nervous and anxious about this. I mean, I was crying about it for like a week leading up to camp. And my parents just kept, you know, assuring me, you're going to have a great time. You're going to love it. And I felt like they were sending me off to like prison camp or something. You know what I mean? And uh, so this Sunday afternoon comes and they took me to church and I loaded up this old, on this old school bus. And, you know, and I, you know, think, oh man, they're, they're sending me off to some death camp here or something. And I was just bawling, you know, my mom and dad are, you're going to be okay. Just go ahead have fun. I'm like, this isn't fun, you know. We get to camp, and the first meal we had that afternoon when we arrived at camp were cold tater tots and cold hot dogs. And I'm thinking, this is fun. This is miserable. This is horrible. And I was just in despair thinking ahead. I I have five more days here. What did you do to me, mom and dad? So I started hatching my plan. (laughs) That night after our uh, cabin went to bed, I determined I am getting out of this place. And so uh, as a fifth grader, I waited for my cabin to fall asleep, and my counselor was asleep. And uh, right around one in the morning, I snuck out of my cabin, marched through the dark all the way across the, the campground to, uh, to where the camp offices were, because I had spotted earlier in the day a telephone booth outside of the camp office. And I thought, I'm going to call home and get myself out of this place. So sure enough, I snuck through the dark out to the camp offices to the telephone booth. I got inside the telephone booth, made a collect call to my parents, woke them up at 1 in the morning. My dad's like, Jason, what are you doing calling us at 1 in the morning? And I was bawling on the other end of the line. Dad, you got to come get me. This is horrible. This place, the food's terrible. Nobody likes me here. I want to go home. I was pleading, begging to come home. Well, sure enough, one in the morning, as I'm out in the middle of this telephone booth, all of a sudden I hear a knock on the glass door, and it's the camp director. He had been up uh, in the office, and he had seen, you know, some kid walking in and making a phone call in the middle of the night. So he gets on the phone with my dad, and they start talking, and, and, uh, you know, they're on the phone together trying to figure out what to do with this, you know, homesick kid calling home in the middle of the night. Well, the camp director ends up giving the phone back to my dad, uh, or, or giving the phone back to me. My dad's on the other end of the line. He's like, Jason, here's the deal. You need to stick it out. I want you to stay at camp. You're going to have a good week. Try to have a positive attitude about it. Give it a chance. You're going to have fun. I promise you. And I said, Dad, I just want to come home. And he's like, Jason, I want you to be tough and stick it out. He said, but here's my promise to you, Jason. Friday morning when it's time to come home, I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to drive up to camp, and I'm going to pick you up, and I'm going to bring you home but you're going to be just fine. You're going to have a good week. Well, friends, it was my dad's promise that he was coming to get me on Friday that gave me the hope and the encouragement to stick it out through that week of camp. And no matter how hard it was, no matter how much I wanted to come home, I knew that my dad was coming on Friday morning to get me. 
he had made me a promise. And, and that gave me hope. That gave me encouragement. And in the same way, this morning we're going to look at a passage in the book of Micah, chapter 4, which is a promise of hope from God to the people of Israel. A promise of hope for the future. A promise of hope for their present circumstances today. And what we're going to see here in this incredible passage are some words that really speak uh, hope and encouragement into our lives today as well. You know, the first three chapters so far in the book of Micah, some of you I'm sure are thinking, you know, not quite sure what to make of this book so far. I mean, so far this book has been a lot of doom and gloom and prophecies of judgment and, uh, you know, not a lot of uplifting stuff here, right? What we've seen so far is God had sent the prophet Micah to speak this word of condemnation against his people. The, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, they had broken their covenant with God. They had rebelled against God. They had committed idolatry. They, they were committing all kinds of injustices. Injustice was rampant throughout the land. Their leaders had committed insubordination, not leading the people in the ways that God had called them to lead, but leading them unjustly. And so we had a society here just plagued with corruption. And because of all of these things, God had sent the prophet Micah to speak a word of judgment against his people. God said, I'm going to send you away into exile. Foreign armies are going to come. They're going to conquer you. They're going to take you away. But God said, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you back to the promised land. Though you may have broken your covenant with me, I'm going to show my faithfulness to you by ultimately bringing you back. And see, God wanted to take his people from a place of rebellion to restoration. And to do that, he needed to discipline them. We've talked about how sometimes God does the very same thing in our lives today. He sometimes brings discipline into our lives to, to bring us out of our rebellion and to restore us into a right relationship with him. And this is what God was doing with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. And, and so... When you read the first three chapters of Micah, you know, all of this doom and gloom, I mean, you, you can walk away from these first three weeks of our series thinking, you know, is this all there is? I mean, is all hope lost? Has God just, you know, thrown Israel onto the ash heap of history and abandoned these people? But what we're going to find today is that's not the case at all. We're going to see an incredible picture here in chapter 4 of God's faithfulness. In fact, over the next two weeks, chapters 4 and 5 really are, are just this wealth of these incredible promises of God speaking to his people, declaring his faithfulness, declaring a hope and a future for them. And there's a lot of promises in these passages that are just as relevant for us today. So here's what I want to do this morning. I'm going to read our passage for us, Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And then I want to come back and I want to highlight two of these incredible promises that we see here in chapter 4 this morning. So Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. Peoples will stream to it. And many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among many peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation, and they will never again train for war. 
But each person will sit under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him. For the mouth of the Lord of armies has spoken. Though all the peoples walk in the name of their own gods, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration, I will assemble the lame and gather the scattered, those I have injured. I will make the lame into a remnant, those far removed into a strong nation. Then the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time on and forever. And you, watchtower for the flock, fortified hill of daughter Zion, the former rule will come to you. Sovereignty will come to daughter Jerusalem. Now why are you shouting loudly? Is there no king with you? Has your counselor perished? So that anguish grips you like a woman in labor? Writhe and cry out, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you will leave the city and camp in the open fields. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the grasp of your enemies. Many nations have now assembled against you. They say, let her be defiled and let us feast our eyes on Zion. But they do not know the Lord's intentions. Or understand his plan. That he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion. For I will make your horns iron and your hooves bronze. So you can crush many peoples. Then you will set apart their plunder for the Lord. Their wealth for the Lord of the whole earth. It's an incredible passage of hope for God's people. And here today in Micah chapter 4, what I want to do is I want to highlight for us two of the incredible promises that we see in this passage. The, the first of these promises is a promise of faithfulness for the future. God promises his peopleness faithfulness for the future. In verses 1 through 8, we see this incredible promise of the Lord. These first eight verses start out with the words, in the last days, in the last days. And Micah opens this passage with these words, in the last days, giving us an important clue here about what we're going to be looking at in these first eight verses of chapter 4. What we're reading about here in these first verses of chapter 4 today is Micah's vision of Jesus Christ's millennial reign on earth following his second coming. The Bible has a lot to say about the end times and about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And there are different interpretations and opinions about how the timing of these events will take place. But, but essentially what the Bible teaches us is that Jesus Christ is coming again. Our king is going to return. And when Jesus Christ returns, he will come and, and all of the nations of the world who had been following after this, this evil ruler called the Antichrist, will gather together against the Lord and his people in the great battle known as Armageddon. And there Jesus and his armies from heaven will come down and they will destroy the nations that have rebelled against him. And Jesus is then going to bind Satan and he's going to throw him in the abyss for a thousand years. And then the Bible tells us that Jesus is going to reign over this present world for a thousand years. Jesus will rule in this world for a thousand years before 
his ultimate reign in our heavenly kingdom when God creates a new heaven and a new earth. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about these end times events, but, but today what I really want to focus on is this thousand-year reign of Christ, this period known as the millennium. And where do we get this idea of the millennium? Where is it found in Scripture? Well, it's found in Revelations chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20, let me read for you verses 1 through 6 today as we read a description of Jesus Christ's millennial reign on the earth. This is the Apostle John and a vision he was given. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him to the abyss and closed it and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. These are people who had not worshipped the beast or his image or who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. The Bible tells us that a day is coming when Christ will return. And he is going to reign over this world for a thousand years. Jesus Christ is going to institute a period of prosperity and peace and justice unlike anything the world has ever known. And here in Micah 4 verses 1 through 8, Micah begins to fill in for us the picture of what this millennial reign of Jesus Christ will look like. The, the big picture that we just read in Revelations 20 is given further clarity to us by the prophet Micah here in these first eight verses. And Micah tells us that this millennial reign of Jesus Christ is going to be absolutely amazing. It will be an incredible period for this present world. It, it won't quite be our ultimate experience of glory in heaven but as Pastor Stevens' professor and one of his mentors in seminary, Daryl Bach, once described, the millennial reign of Christ will be the front porch of the new heaven and the new earth. In the millennial reign of Christ, we will see a glimpse of what our eternal glory in heaven will look like. See, when Jesus Christ reigns on this earth for a thousand years, he's going to bring about a great reversal. And as part of this great reversal, all of the wrongs we've seen in the first three chapters of Micah, the idolatry, the injustice, the insubordination of the leaders, all of these wrongs are going to be righted. Micah tells us what this great reversal will look like. He, he begins, he says that idolatry will be exchanged for I am. Instead of the worship of false gods and false idols, Micah tells us in verses 1 through 2 that the nations will stream to Jerusalem. People will stream to Jerusalem coming to hear the truth from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus Christ, our great I am. 
One of the most popular philosophies in our culture today is a belief called religious pluralism. And religious pluralism teaches this idea that it doesn't matter what you believe, that, that all religions are basically the same, and at the end of the day, all roads lead to God. You just have to be sincere and faithful and following whatever particular religion you choose, but ultimately, they'll all take us to the same place. But friends, that's just not the truth. Jesus Christ tells us in verses like John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, while the idea that all roads lead to God might all sound good to us, it's just not the truth. There's only one way to God. But what's very interesting here is when it comes to the millennial kingdom, Micah tells us that all roads truly do lead to God. But it's not the universalistic God of religious pluralism. The roads of the millennial kingdom will lead the nations to the mountain of the Lord, to Jerusalem, to the throne room of Jesus Christ, the great I am. And there the Lord will teach his truth to the nations. Imagine what this is going to look like, friends. Peoples and nations from around the world coming to the feet of Jesus to be taught the word of God by Jesus himself. I mean, picture this. Former soldiers of ISIS traveling to Jerusalem to sit at the feet of Jesus. Former Chinese communist oppressors of the church fleeing, flocking to Jerusalem to sit at the feet of Jesus. To be taught in his ways. Hardcore, militant, atheistic professors bowing down in humility at the feet of Jesus, saying, teach me, Lord, so that I might go out and proclaim your ways to others. What an incredible day this is going to be. But Micah then goes on and he tells us, not only will idolatry be exchanged for, for the worship of I am, he goes on in verses three, 3 and 4, he says, injustice will be traded for impartiality. Unlike the injustice and violence that characterized the days of Micah, true justice, fairness, and peace will be the experience in the millennial kingdom because that justice, fairness, and peace will be meted out by Jesus Christ himself. It will be an incredible time. Micah highlights for us what some of this period of true justice and righteousness in our world will look like. He, he shares in verse 3 that the Lord will settle disputes among many peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation and they will never again train for war. Isn't that incredible, friends? There will be no more war. There will be no more weapons, no more armies. Jesus is going to institute this period of incredible peace. You know, if you travel to New York City today, you can go and you can visit the headquarters of the United Nations. The United Nations was begun in 1945. And in 1945, the United Nations began with the charter, with the commission to bring peace and security to the nations of the world and to foster unity and harmony among all peoples. And if you go to the United Nations building, do we have the picture? You can go out front of the United Nations building and you can see statues of guns with their barrels twisted up and tied together. 
You can see statues out in front of men beating their swords into plows. But friends, how has this commission to bring peace to the world worked out for us? I think we have to admit that the United Nations has fallen short of its goal. We don't live in a world of peace and harmony where nations no longer take up swords against nations, where evil regimes don't seek to subjugate other people. And friends, we'll never experience this kind of peace and harmony in this world until the day when Jesus Christ comes to rule and to reign. You see, the problem with men and women is that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. All of us are infected with a spiritual disease called sin. And because of our sin, we are greedy, we are selfish, we covet, we take from others what is not ours. And friends, it's the sin in our hearts that it's at, that's at the root of all the warfare and violence in our world today. And that's never going to change until Jesus Christ comes and rules and reigns and brings peace and true unity to this world. But that day is coming. Micah goes on in verse 4. He says, not only will there be this incredible period of peace amongst the nations, but he says in verse 4, each person will sit under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him. Friends, this period of the millennial reign of Christ is going to be a time of prosperity, a time of plenty, a time of peace. I shared last week how my family once served as missionaries in the Philippines in the 1980s. One of the places where we would minister in the Philippines was a garbage dump outside of Manila, the capital of the Philippines, called Smoky Mountain. To this day, over 50,000 people live inside Smoky Mountain there in the garbage dump. It's called Smoky Mountain because of the continual spontaneous combustion of the garbage causing perpetual smoke to rise from the garbage heap. And I remember going and visiting Smoky Mountain with my parents and the missionary teams that would go to care for the people there. And when you walk into Smoky Mountain, you find hundreds, thousands of people scavenging through the trash, looking for food to eat, looking for anything that they might recycle and reuse for their survival. I remember seeing little boys sitting on the side of makeshift roads through these alleyways with raw sewage flowing down the middle of the street. I remember girls playing with headless dolls amidst the rubble and the garbage. I remember moms holding tiny little babies suffering from malnutrition bloated stomachs, flies sucking at the mucus of their eyes. They're so used to it, they don't even bother to brush the flies away anymore. Friends, when Jesus Christ rules and reigns over this world in the millennial kingdom, there will be no more smoky mountains. There will be no more poverty. There will be no more hungry people in want Jesus tells us that every single person will sit under their own grapevine and eat from their own fig tree and they will never again feel threatened from anyone who would come to steal from them because Jesus is going to rule with true justice. What a day that's going to be, friends. Micah further tells us in verses 6 through 8 that insubordination is going to be replaced with integrity. 
As we saw last week, the rebellious human leaders of Israel had failed to shepherd God's people faithfully. But here in verses 6 through 8, when Christ reigns, he's going to lead his people as a true shepherd. Look what Micah says here. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration. I will assemble the lame and gather the scattered, those I have injured. I will make the lame into a remnant, those far removed into a strong nation. Then the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time on and forever. The description of Christ's loving reign here reminds me of another Old Testament passage which speaks of the Lord, our shepherd. Psalm 23, verses 1 through 4. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his namesake. Even when I go through the valley of the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Friends, these aren't just words of comfort that we recite to lift our spirits at funeral services. This is the truth of who Christ is. The Lord is our shepherd. And one day our loving shepherd will bring about this great reversal. He will reign over this world in truth and justice and with integrity. And what an incredible day that's going to be. What a hope we have to look forward to when Christ returns. But friends, Micah's prophecy today doesn't just give us a hope for the distant future. We don't have to wait for this day when Christ returns to experience God's hope because Micah also tells us here in verses 9 through 13, he gives us a promise of God's faithfulness even today. A promise of God's faithfulness for today. As we move into verses 9 through 13 of chapter 4, we find Micah transitioning from his vision of Christ's future millennial reign to once again addressing the present circumstances of God's people in the southern kingdom of Judah. And while these next five verses speak specifically to their experience, friends, there are some important principles here that are just as relevant for us today. Principles like our deliverance is found when our desperation is realized. Our deliverance is found when our desperation is realized. In verses 9 through 10, Micah opens this second section with some words that at first sound almost shockingly harsh. Micah says to the people of Judah, why are you shouting loudly? Is there no king with you? Has your counselor perished so that anguish grips you like a woman in labor? Writhe and cry out, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor, for you will leave this city and camp in the open fields. Now, is Micah mocking the people of Judah here? It sort of sounds like that. But what Micah's really trying to do here is shock the people of Judah. He wants to shock them into a recognition of their desperate plight. He needs them to understand just how serious their circumstances truly are. I remember hearing a story once about Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was one of the great theologians of the 20th century. Dr. Barnhouse shared the story of 
how many times on his way to work, on his commute, he would encounter a man on the streets who was a, a salesman of newspapers and magazines. And, and Dr. Barnhouse would often witness to this man. And, and this man was a hardcore atheist. He was proud of his atheism. He didn't want anything to do with God. And Dr. Barnhouse one day heard from a, a friend of this man that he had been stricken with cancer. And he was in the hospital dying, and he was in his last days. And so Dr. Barnhouse went to the hospital to visit this man who he had witnessed too many times in the past. And he sat down at this man's bedside. And this man looked at him and said, Dr. Barnhouse, what are you doing here? And Dr. Barnhouse said, well, I've always wondered what it would be like to see a non-Christian die. I've always wondered what it would be like to see somebody face their final moments with no hope for eternity. And this man looked at Dr. Barnhouse and said, have you come to torment me in my final days? You've come to mock me in my final hours? Dr. Barnhouse said to him, I wonder what you'll say when you stand before the pearly gates and Jesus asks you, why should I allow you into my paradise? And suddenly this man broke out in tears, began sobbing uncontrollably. The Holy Spirit had touched his heart and he realized the desperate situation he was in. And there in his final hours, he prayed with Dr. Barnhouse to give his life to Jesus. And he pleaded with Dr. Barnhouse, you need to share this testimony with everybody who comes to my funeral. See, friends, sometimes it takes a willingness to speak the hard truths to someone to bring them to a place of repentance. And in the same way, this is what Micah is doing here. He wants the people of Judah to realize just how desperate they really are. And he speaks these hard truths in the hope that they might turn back to the one who can truly deliver them. And in the second half of verse 10, Micah goes on to point them to their deliverer. He says, the Lord will redeem you. And notice here, friends, Micah was very clear. There was only one possible source of deliverance. The, the people of Judah couldn't save themselves. There wasn't another nation that was going to come to their rescue. It was only the Lord who would redeem them from the grasp of their enemies. And this morning, friends, I want you to reflect on your own desperate condition. Have you spent time reflecting on your own desperate state today? Have you come to realize the reality of your own spiritual exile from our Heavenly Father? Do you recognize today that there's no hope for your deliverance apart from a relationship with the Lord, Jesus Christ? See, the good news this morning is that God is still in the redemption business. And when we recognize just how far from God we truly are, if we are willing to confess our sins and turn back to him in faith, God promises that he will forgive us and redeem us and make us a new creation. The Apostle John in 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's only the Lord who can do that. 
And it only happens if you're willing to humble yourself and cry out to the Lord. See, apart from Jesus, your situation is desperate. But with Jesus, you can experience true deliverance. The second principle we see here in these final verses is because of God's sovereignty, our safety is secured. Man, this is a great promise. I could preach on this all day long. Here in these final verses of chapter 4, Micah speaks a powerful word of hope to the people of Judah. He tells them that even though God was going to send them into exile, even though evil nations were surrounding them, mocking them, though all hope seemed lost, God wanted his people to remember that he had not abandoned them. And more than that, God wanted to assure them that every single thing they were going to experience was ultimately a part of God's perfect will and plan for their lives. Yes, they were going to face discipline, but God would restore them because he is faithful. Here in these final verses, God reminds his people of three powerful truths. Three truths that have as much meaning to you and I today. The first truth he says here in these final verses, he says, God is sovereign over our steps. God is sovereign over our steps. Friends, it was no accident that the people of Israel were being taken into, into exile. It was no mistake that they were headed to Babylon. It wasn't the will of the Babylonian Empire that would lead them from Jerusalem. It was the will of their sovereign God who was in control of everything. He's sovereign over all of our steps. What a great hope that is. Can you imagine being the people of Israel, hearing this prophecy, foreign armies marching, knocking at the gates of the city, knowing you're about to be taken in exile, not knowing what your future holds, and yet God says, I am sovereign over your steps. You're going to be taken to Babylon, but I will redeem you because I'm in control of your life. It's just like the psalmist tells us in Psalm 37, 23. A person's steps are established by the Lord. And he takes pleasure in his ways. Friends, your steps, your days, your life, your breath, everything is in the sovereign control of our good and faithful God. Have you meditated on that truth? Have you reflected on that truth? You know, this past week, I was looking out my kitchen window one morning, and it was 35 below zero, negative 50 wind chill, and there outside my kitchen window at one of our bird feeders was this tiny little chickadee. And I thought to myself, how incredible that God cares for this little chickadee. God led her to food this morning. God kept her safe overnight, somewhere warm and secure in her nest and if God loves the chickadee like that, how much more does God care about me? And I had just finished reading and studying this passage, and I thought to myself, man, God is so sovereign over every aspect of my life. I can trust him. I can rest in that security. 
The second truth we see here in this passage is not only is God sovereign over our steps, he is sovereign over our situations. I love it in verse 11. Many nations have now assembled against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let us feast our eyes on Zion. But they do not know the Lord's intentions or understand his plan. It wasn't these foreign armies who were in control of Israel's destiny. It wasn't the emperor of Babylon who was in control of their exile. God was sovereign over their situation. God was in control all along. It's just like King David tells us in Psalm chapter 2. He says in Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Next slide, please. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Because he is sovereign. He's the one in control. Friends, how many times have evil men tried to destroy the Jewish people? How many times has Israel been threatened by foreign nations? How many philosophies and movements and revolutions have tried to persecute and destroy the Lord's church? And yet God laughs at them all. Because the Lord is sovereign. History is his story. And you know something, friends? So is your story. God is sovereign over your life. And he's in control. Thirdly, Micah tells us that God is sovereign over our security. God had not abandoned his people. They wouldn't be left alone in their exile. And they would ultimately be rescued. Because God is faithful. And his love is unfailing. Friends, have you reflected on God's unfailing love for you today? Have you reflected on the truth that there is nothing in this world that can separate you from God's love? No matter what you're going through, no matter what hardship you might be facing, no matter how many enemies come against you, no matter your temptations, your addictions, your depressions, whatever it may be, there is absolutely nothing in this world that can separate you from God's Unfailing love. It's like the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. Uh -uh. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, if that doesn't encourage your heart today, there's nothing in this world that will. What an awesome promise. What a great hope. See, Micah's prophetic word here in chapter 4, think about what a dynamic source of hope this must have been for God's people as they face down their coming exile. And the fr friends, the truths in these prophecies, if we take these to heart, if we digest these truths and make them our own, they can serve as much as a source of encouragement for us today as they did for God's people then.
And and so I just want to encourage you today, if you find yourself in a difficult situation, if you find yourself struggling to maintain hope, you can find your encouragement by resting in the promises of God's sovereignty because he's a faithful God. And just as he proved himself faithful 2,500 years ago to the people of Judah, ultimately bringing them out of exile, he will prove himself faithful to you today if you'll simply trust in him. Micah tells us here in chapter four that one day all the nations of the earth will stream to the mountain of the Lord. But friends, you and I have the privilege of building our lives upon that rock even today. What an incredible hope we have in Jesus. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible prophecy of faithfulness and hope that we find here in Micah chapter 4. We thank you for your great love, Jesus. We thank you that we can trust in you no matter our circumstances, no matter the trials we find ourselves in, that you are always good and faithful. Lord, help us rest in those promises today. Let these same words of encouragement that you gave your people 2,500 years ago encourage us even today. Remind us, Lord, of your goodness and your love and help us to lean on that. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I leave you with these words from the Apostle Paul in Romans 15, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.